Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, and then Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 says this, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. This text is Paul's closing doxology after laboring in doctrine for three chapters in this book. He's been laboring to explain the unity of the church, the church as a mystery. And so to close this doctrinal portion, uh, Paul closes with this doxology. And he says, to him be the glory in the church. In other words, this is the ultimate goal of it all, that Christ, that God be glorified in the church. Now the question we must answer is this, how do we do that? How do we do that? So often church is done a certain way because it works. Oh wow, look how many people are coming in now that we're doing fill in the blank. So often the emphasis becomes attracting people to get them into your building. But if the attraction is something superficial or or entertaining or appealing to the public eye, then the problem is, is that once they get here, you've got to keep them there. And you've got to continue to entertain So church becomes something more like entertainment than it does worship. The focus slowly shifts from being God-centered to being man-centered. Whatever we can do to meet people where they're at, including their preferences, their wants, their desires, their needs, that's what we'll do. And essentially what I've just described is a seeker-sensitive church, always adapting to the times and unfortunately adapting themselves right out of being an actual church. So what is church? Do you think about this often? What comprises a biblical church? Well, let me start by defining what a church is not. A church is not a few people gathered together. Okay? A church is not a large group of people gathered together studying the Bible. A church is not a home Bible study. A church is not a missions agency, a youth ministry, or any parachurch organization. Crew, Chi Alpha, InterVarsity, YWAM, Young Life, even Cross Life, none of these are churches. This is not church. So what are the elements or components that an institution or specifically a ministry must contain in order to be considered a church? What are the marks of a healthy church? Well, in preparing for this, I found a few things that almost made the list but not quite. Um, A cool coffee shop with a clever name, something like Jehovah Java, Uh, Hebrews, Holy Roasters. Uh, This one caught my eye. Save your coffee house, hyphen, have you been saved? Thought that was pretty good. Uh, Another thing that did not make the list was a hip pastor that is required to have a cool hairdo, a V-neck, skinny jeans, and full-rimmed glasses. Didn't quite make the list. Not that that's bad, but didn't make the list in the Bible. The latest and greatest light effects and fog machines, not necessary. A fresh, new, and exciting church name. A drummer that rocks hard, preferably with Christian tattoos and also a cool hairdo. Didn't make the list. Uh, The most relevant youth ministry with the most elaborate vacation Bible school stage design, the most exciting missions trips, lockdown security nurseries, intensely exciting music, sparkling and welcoming bathrooms. Nope. None of these made the list for today's cut. None of these are requirements according to God's word. So then what does constitute a biblical church? Further, how can we have a church that is, as we read in Ephesians 3.21, glorifying to the Lord? That's the goal, right? So between this week and next week, we're going to do a two-part series and look at nine elements, or nine marks, if you will, of a healthy church. I use several of the points made by Mark Dever in, in his book titled Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. And so some of this is going to come from this resource. Today, I think we'll probably get to four of them and finish up next week. 
And really the goal in giving you these nine elements is twofold. Number one, it's going to show you that Scripture is sufficient to address this issue. Scripture lays out how we're to do church. We're not left to our own to figure it out, how to worship God and what church is to look like, but God has told us directly. He's given us instructions. Uh, So what we're going to see is really neat, guys. What we're going to see is that all of these marks tie together very nicely. There's a unity of purpose, a unity of direction that's going to come from the mind of God. There's not this schizophrenia going on in that, oh, we're going to do this aspect in this area of the church, but this aspect over here, and, well, that doesn't make any sense. No, we're going to see a unified purpose and direction. And the second goal for laying these out for you is so that you will know how to evaluate a church on a biblical level. There's a myriad of options out there for where to do church. I went onto the yellow pages on Google uh, yesterday, and Justin Bozeman, guess how many churches there are? where you could worship on a Sunday. 30, 40, 50, 60, 104. There's 104 places you could go on a Sunday to worship some form of creator. So how are you going to choose? How are you going to choose where to do church? Maybe right now you're still trying to figure out a church to attend. Uh, What's going to be the basis? Will it be the people? Will it be how you feel? Will it be how entertained you are? Will it be the music? Perhaps some of the criteria I mentioned earlier, like lights and fog machines, uh, what's going to be your deciding factor? And beyond this, many of you are going to leave here at some point. You're going to leave Bozeman, and this is going to be a very real circumstance in your life. How do I decide where to go to church? And so I hope that these will be equipping for you as you move beyond this place as well. And so diving right in, the first mark of a healthy church is expositional preaching. And to me, this is really the number one thing. If a church is committed to expositional preaching of the Word of God, in all likelihood, they're probably going to get several of the other factors right. You may be asking, what in the world does expositional mean? Well, I'm glad you asked. Expositional preaching is this. It's preaching that exposes the meaning of the text. Expositional or expository preaching takes for the point of the sermon the point of a particular passage of Scripture. In other words, the main point being communicated is the main point of the text. More detail is going to be given on this in another sermon, but before passing over it, maybe it'll be helpful to compare this and contrast it with other forms of preaching. For example, there's feel-good preaching, and this is where the preacher removes anything that's offensive or confrontational from their sermon, There's no dealing with sin, no talk of suffering, repentance, persecution. Instead, the focus is on happiness, wealth, health, and prosperity. And the goal of the sermon is really to have people leave feeling good about themselves. Hence the name feel-good preaching. Uh, Another contrast to expository preaching is springboard preaching. And this is where a pastor starts in a text of Scripture, but simply uses it to launch out into his own thoughts pertaining to a topic that quite honestly, may or may not have been in the text. Uh, This kind of preaching gives the appearance of using the Word of God, but in reality, it's just communicating man's thoughts and man's ideas. Thirdly, there's emergent-style preaching, and this is preaching that's in connection with the emergent movement. It's more of an ecumenical way of doing church where uh, there's an open mic, everyone's opinion is valued, everyone's voice is heard. It's kind of a group share session. Uh, As such, it's very postmodern in its approach, conveying that everyone's opinion matters and should be valued. And guys, just to say this, these three alternatives, they fall so short of how God has prescribed church to be done. God has ordained that qualified leadership is to stand and teach the word of God in a manner so that they can understand it. Listen to these texts, 2 Timothy 4.2, Paul tells Timothy to preach the word. Acts 20, 27, Paul said to the elders at Ephesus, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. This is a cool one. Nehemiah 8, 8, way back before the Psalms uh, in Nehemiah, Nehemiah 8, 8, it said that Ezra and the other leaders read from the book, from the law of God, translating it to give the sense so that they understood the reading. This is essentially what expository preaching is. It's giving the sense of a text and translating it to the people. Expository preaching requires proper hermeneutics to be done, get this, in order to discover the authorial intent 
or in order to discover what the author intended to say in a given passage. Further, expository preaching or teaching presumes belief in the authority of Scripture. It recognizes that Scripture is the authority, not man. Without expository preaching, all you hear is what the pastor already knows. Right? You're limited to the pastor's mind capacity. Like, for example, in springboard preaching, you start in a text, you jump out, and all you're getting is the pastor's opinions about life or what he observes in society or in the government. And in this setting, guys, what's going to happen? Well, what's going to happen is that the church is going to be conformed to the pastor's way of thinking rather than God's way of thinking. On the other hand, though, expository preaching is preaching the very words of God as he intended them. Now, just in closing on this point, expository preaching, it can be done topically, uh, but it can also be done sequentially or verse by verse. Most topical preaching is not expository. It would be in one of those other categories. But for example, this evening's talk will be a topical talk that is hopefully done in an expository manner. Uh, However, sequential or systematic preaching is when a pastor preaches through verse by verse through various books of the Bible. And this is really preferred because of this reason. It ensures that the pastor does in fact teach the whole counsel of God. Right? If, if you're just topical preaching Sunday after Sunday, it's all too easy for the pastor to pick and choose the topics that he wants to preach on and thereby skip over those more difficult topics to preach on, those more difficult passages. But if you decide, I'm going to teach verse by verse through a book, You have no choice but to teach the whole counsel of God. And so that is uh, the pastor's role and what's to be expected in the church. Uh, Again, just at Cross Life, we typically choose topical talks because of a few reasons. Number one, we assume you're in a church where you're getting uh, expositional sequential teaching, where you're already getting that. And if not, our community groups are also going through books verse by verse. And so to have a third book, for example, if you do go to Grace, we're studying Mark, and then in community groups, First Timothy, to have a third book that we're going through, it, it's maybe not just the best. And so instead, we choose to do a topical series that supplements that, but we really encourage you to be in a church where the Word is being taught in an expository manner. In any case, returning to this first mark of a healthy church, a church needs to be teaching expositionally and exposing the text's meaning. Secondly, though, the next mark of a healthy church is biblical church leadership. And if you were to survey how churches were to structure their leadership, you would honestly find a million and one answers. Uh, Every church is forced to take a stance on this, and many churches end up all over the board on how do we make decisions? How does our church uh, government work? How do we carry out the every day and every week needs of the body? Further, uh, if you were to look at the roles of elders and deacons, again, you would find hundreds of different roles and how they function within a church. I think you could go from church to church and have much confusion about what is an elder and what is a deacon. So, let's turn to the Bible. Go to Titus chapter 1. From Ephesians, flip to your right, past all the T's to the last T, uh, which is Titus chapter 1. And I want to look at how is biblical church leadership to function? Who are these people to be and what are they to do? Titus chapter 1, verse 5, Paul writing, he says, For this reason I left you, Timothy, in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Now, Paul's instructions to Titus were to set in order what remains. This is likely in reference to fixing the false doctrine. In other words, cleaning up the loose ends when it came to doctrinal teaching in this church. But then next, he says that you are to appoint elders in every city. And this word elder used here is presbyteros. It occurs 66 times in the New Testament. And while there are times when it does refer to someone who is just older in age, Many, many times it refers to a specific office or role of someone within a church. Now what's interesting though is if you keep reading and you look at verse 7, now he changes titles and he says in verse 7, for the overseer must be above reproach. It's clear as you read through this, he's talking about the same same guy, the elder, and now he calls him an overseer. 
This Greek word overseer is the word episkopos, meaning overseer, supervisor, ruler. It's where we get our English word episcopal from, which means governed by bishops. And yet, even thirdly, if you were to move beyond just this text in Titus, you would see a third title for these men. And in English, that title is pastor or shepherd. We often call staff elders pastors, the guys that are paid by a church. We call them pastors in our culture. But it would be just as biblical to refer to a lay elder or a volunteer elder as a pastor or a staff elder as just an overseer or an elder. They're all interchangeable. There's three titles to refer to one position in the Bible. Uh, And really those three titles emphasize three different aspects of that position. In any case, it's clear that these were were to be the men that led the church. And so then Titus was to appoint these kind of men, these elders, in every city. That was his job. Further, I think if we notice from this text, there was to be a plurality of elders in a given church. Now, obviously, not at the compromise of character. Some churches, I mean, just practically speaking, aren't going to have enough men uh, to have more than one pastor who are qualified. But if you look at verse 5, look at this again. He said, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders, plural, in every city, singular. So this is the order that Paul had for Titus to appoint elders in every city. And by implication, this is left for us. This is how we are to uh, establish a church, how our churches are to be established. Now, these men, who were they? Were they just chosen at random? Were they chosen by age? Uh, No, they weren't. They weren't even chosen by age, despite the title elder. They were chosen, and this is important, they were chosen on the basis of their character. Right? They were chosen on the basis of their character. In fact, the only time-related qualification comes in 1 Timothy 3 when he says that an elder is not to be a new convert. In other words, an elder is to be a mature Christian, someone who's been walking with the Lord for a while and is mature compared to his peers. They were meant to be exemplary. So character is the key. Look at verse 6. He continues, appoint elders in every city as I directed you, verse 6, namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. So these verses tell us exactly what this type of man was to be like. Do you notice the emphasis on character? He was to be a man of character, generally speaking, who was above reproach. That's the kind of guy that these elders are to be. Now what about what he's to do? What is the elder's role in the church? Well, we saw a glimpse of this uh, in verse 7 when he titles him overseer. Right? He switches from the use of elder to now overseer. And really, he, that's his job. He is to oversee the flock of God. He is to provide direction uh, from the word of God to the people of God to really shepherd them, is the imagery going on here, in their walk with God. This is somewhat summarized in verse 9, after the qualifications. It says, so that, look in verse 9, so that he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. This is the pastor's job. It's the elder's job. It's the overseer's job. He's to teach sound doctrine, or in other words, the things that the Bible says about man, God, Jesus, heaven, hell, uh, sin, humanity, and... He's to teach those things, and he's to refute those who contradict. And I believe that's both from the pulpit, in one-on-one relationships. As he goes, his job is to protect the flock from error, to teach those things that are true and to protect from error. According to 1 Peter uh, chapter 5, he's to do this with love and with care. He's to do it willingly, not for sordid gain, with eagerness, is what Peter says. And so that's what the elder is to do. 
Now, this is not exhaustive. We could go through and we could look at each of these qualifications and really learn a lot from that. But generally speaking, this is who the leaders of the church are to be, and this is what they are to do. Now, in addition to elders, though, elders who give spiritual oversight to the church, there are also to be deacons. Okay? And a deacon, likewise, needed to be and needs to be a man of character. Upright, blameless, godly. These qualifications are outlined in 1 Timothy 3, but they're very similar to the ones we just read. And really, the only difference between the qualifications for an elder and a deacon, according to Paul in the Bible, is this, is that an elder had to be able to teach. In other words, an elder had to be skilled or gifted, you could say, with the gift of teaching in a public setting. The deacon needs to have a knowledge of the word, but he does not need to be able to teach publicly where for the elder, uh, he does need to be able to. Now, pertaining to their role as a deacon, the title itself is helpful. The, the word in Greek is diakonos, which means servant. So a deacon was to be a servant. And to see their role demonstrated, flip back to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. This is really the... You could say the beginning of the role of deacon. Right after the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, chapter 6, verse 1, read, read along with me. It says, Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. Okay, so in other words, the administrative role of the church in caring for widows was being overlooked. Okay, this was one thing the church was to do, to care for widows, and this duty was being over, overlooked. So the apostles summoned the church together, look at verse 2, the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select... <clears throat> From among you, seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom. Let's stop right there for a moment. Now, their role as the leaders, uh, the apostles, and by this time, really, the elders of the church was to teach the Word of God. They were to teach it corporately, uh, proclaiming, explaining these truths. But what's going on here is that they were, they were so devoted to the teaching of the Word that they weren't able to, they just didn't have the time to carry out the administrative duties in the church, one of which was uh, feeding the widows. So, as these men, as we saw, they were to gather together some and appoint men to do this. Let's keep reading. We'll read verse 3 again. He says, Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task, feeding the widows. Verse 4, But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So even here in the beginning of Acts, we see this delineation of elders and deacons, a distinction that Paul would go on to further explain in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 3. <clears throat> so that's what we've got. We've got elders, spiritual oversight, deacons assisting the elders or serving the church by doing the administrative things. Another interesting note, though, pertaining to church leadership is this. It's that women aren't permitted to be elders. Paul very explicitly says this. Um, to see this, I'll just read out of Genesis chapter 2 from the very beginning in verse 18. It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And so God had just made all of creation, capping it with the creation of man, and he saw that man was alone and that it wasn't good. And so he made a helpmate suitable for him, to be compatible, to be complementary to the man. Now, as we move into the next chapter of Genesis chapter 3, what happens? Well, God's original design is tainted by sin. Adam and Eve fall into sin. And here it's where God says this in Genesis 3.16. He says, To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring, bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. How are we to understand this? 
Well, the desire spoken of here that was part of the curse, part of the effect of sin, was not a sexual desire. It wasn't any sort of good desire, but it was a desire to conquer or to overcome, a desire to rule. Sin corrupted the complementary relationship that God intended with a man and woman being complementary to one another. And as a result, the husband would not willingly lead his wife, just like Adam didn't in the garden, and the wife would would frequently seek to usurp her husband's God-given authority. God had ordained the man to lead the wife and for the wife to be his helpmate, and as a consequence of the curse, men and women now are both constantly failing at fulfilling these roles. Now, this is not at all to say that men and women are not equal in value, in worth, or spiritually at all. They are completely equal, but they are complementary in their roles. God has created them complementary to one another. And now, why does this matter? Well, flip to 1 Timothy. From Acts, go to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Because Paul's going to pick up on this theme, and we needed that as background. Paul is talking about church leadership in 1 Timothy chapter 2, and going into 3 in particular. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. This text teaches that the woman is to be complementary to the husband in the same way that we saw in Genesis, and that this should likewise be modeled in the church. A woman that wasn't designed to lead the man in marriage, and so God has established the same setup for the church. Again, this by no means prohibits women from teaching, and in fact, in this same letter, Paul's going to say to the older women, teach the younger women, right? And so it doesn't prohibit them from teaching those who have gifts, but it does limit the context of when and where they were to teach. This text indicates that she's not to be in the role of instructing men in an authoritative way from the Word of God. But here's the interesting point, and this is why I even went here in the first place, is that I'm not convinced that women cannot be deacons. Or to say it another way, I think they can. Uh, in 1 Timothy 3, look over at chapter 3, <coughs> look at verse 8. We'll read these qualifications. It says, Deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued, or addicted to much wine, or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife and a good manager of their children and their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. In, in reading this section, certainly we see that the norm was probably that deacons were going to be men, right? He addresses men. He talks about being the husband of one wife. But it is interesting how this verse 11 is sandwiched right in the middle of this list of deacons, and it gives the same qualifications for these women as it did for the deacons. Further, if you just think about this practically, the role that a deacon plays in the church is what? It's to be a servant, right? <clears throat> its primary role was aiding the elders in administrative duties. There's no authority or, or uh, teaching necessarily going on. So the, the issue with women being an elder is the exercising of authority over a man. But for a deacon, there's not that scenario. And I want to show you just something that really convinced me. Flip back to Romans chapter 16. We're just going back and forth, I know, but uh, Romans chapter 16, and this is what really kind of opens the door, in my opinion. If you look at Romans 16, right after Acts, <clears throat> verse 1, it says this, I command to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church, which is at Chantria. In other words, that word servant is what word? It's diakonos, right? So, so Paul writing Romans is basically calling Phoebe a deaconess. He says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who's a servant of the church, verse 2, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and that you help her in whatever matter she may have need of you. For she herself has also been a helper of many and of myself as well. 
So it seems to me from this passage that the role of women or the role of deacon is available to women as well. And and practically speaking, right, we know there's no doubt that women in churches serve perhaps more than any behind the scenes, teaching Sunday schools, discipling, administering, being faithful servants to the Lord. So whether they're recognized in a church or not, uh, women are essentially fulfilling the role of deacon. And for that, if you remember at the end of 1 Timothy 3, 13, it says they obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Well, just to wrap up this whole point, the conclusion is this. The biblical model of church leadership is not congregationally led. It is not having a head honcho over 10 different cities or sites. It's not an open mic where opinions are to be shared. But the biblical role, the biblical model given by God for leadership is to have elders who exercise loving and caring oversight over the flock and deacons who assist them in their roles administratively. This is God's model of leadership for the church. Moving to point number three now. Point number three, the mark of a healthy church is a biblical understanding of church membership. And basically speaking, church membership boils down to this. It boils down to the word commitment. It boils down to commitment both ways. The member commits to the church, and therefore the church commits to the member. It's basically entering into a relationship with the church. And practically speaking, there are several cases to be made for membership. The first is that it shows commitment to a given church. Christ's plan for believers is to assemble together on a regular basis. Since Sunday is the first day of the week that Jesus resurrected, typically we do it on Sunday. But in any case... Uh, We are to be gathering together on a regular basis. And in the New Testament, the early church we knew met on a Sunday. And further, we knew that members were committed to a specific church. In fact, there was only one church. So that's the church they went to. And they were there every time they gathered. This group was committed to being a unit of worshipers together. But secondly, from a practical standpoint, it protects the individual. And listen here, college students, because this applies to us immensely. It protects the individual from having a dating, dating the church mentality, a dating the church mentality. The world we live in is so dangerous for the spiritually immature Christian, right? Why? Because if you don't like something at church in our age, you can just leave. If you don't agree with the music, leave. If the pastor says something that's too convicting, go find another church. If you don't like this person or that person, instead of having to work through it and work through your own heart issues and perhaps have to actually reconcile with someone, you can just leave. Go to the church down the road. Go to the church in the other town. Right? It's so, in a sense, dangerous and unhelpful for our spiritual growth. It's unhelpful to be able to elevate our preferences to the top instead of Philippians 2.5, considering one another as more important than ourselves. How about when it comes to music, right? Have you ever thought that in a church there's 80-year-olds as well as 20-year-olds? We aren't the only ones there. So maybe it would be okay if once in a while we humbled ourselves to sing a hymn with them, right? This is the kind of thing that I'm talking about is that membership shows commitment to a church and it keeps you from having the, the fleeing Uh, mentality. Uh, Oh, I don't like something. I'm out of here. Now, this isn't to say that, you know, when you first arrive somewhere, it's not okay to check out different churches. That's a good thing. You should uh, check out churches. But once you found a biblical church that you want to be a part of, plant roots in it. Just thirdly, uh, last practical point is that membership lets the church leaders know who are part of the flock of God among them. We made a case for the elder-led church, and now from a practical standpoint, how are the elders to know the Christians apart from the non-Christians? How are they to know who's a believer and not an unbeliever? Again, they can't see their hearts, but some people will just openly say, I'm not a believer. I'm just here checking things out. Others will profess to be believers. How are they to know? Further, how are they to know if you're visiting for a week, a few weeks, a few months? Maybe you're just there for the summer. Maybe you're just there for Christmas break. How are they to know? Membership allows them to know that you're there for good, or at least as long as you're living in that area. But there's also a few biblical evidences 
I don't say proofs, but I say evidences for church membership. Segwaying from the last point, the same point really applies because turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter is toward the end of your Bible, maybe 5th or 6th from the end. 1 Peter chapter 5. This is a wonderful passage about church leadership again. 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 1 Peter writing says, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. And here's the command to the elders in this church in verse 2. He says, Shepherd the flock of God among you. Shepherd the flock of God among you. The elders in this passage are called to shepherd the flock of God among them. And that means more than just preaching on a Sunday. Right? The role of the elder is not just to preach. There's praying for them, meeting with them on an individual basis, discipling them, equipping them for the ministry. Ephesians 4.11 says the role of the pastor is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And so it's those individuals who are most committed to the church who the church is therefore going to be most committed to. At Grace, I know this is somewhat new, but in an attempt to shepherd the flock of God among us, the Leadership team at Grace has divided all the members up among the, the elders and are now going through and, and trying to just have conversation three or four times a year with them. Ask them for prayer requests. Ask them how things are going, if they can help them get in, involved anyway. And again, this is, not a, this is not exhaustive. That is not all that shepherding boils down to. That's just one attempt to do it. True shepherding does require discipleship. It does require small groups and intentionality. But just as a, one way to do that, I thought that was kind of neat that this church is trying to do that. Hebrews thirteen seventeen kind of adds to the conversation when it says this. It, it's talking to uh, members or lay people. It says, submit or obey, to, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. They keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. And so again, my question is, which leaders are you submitted to? If there's not a commitment to a given church, then both Hebrews 13 and many of these other passages don't really apply to you. They can't be applied in your life. Further, like I said, in biblical times, there was one church in a town. So you didn't have a choice. If you were a Christian, you went to church and you were a member of the only church there. But a second question coming off of Hebrews 13, 17, again, is who will the leaders give an account for? Who are the souls who these leaders are responsible for? Those who have been there for a month or a year or a couple years? How, how is that determined? So membership is one way to say, hey, church, I'm yours. I'm committing to this church. I want to follow this leadership. And therefore, for the church to say, okay, great. <laughs> um, Staying in line with scriptural evidences for membership. Secondly, it's interesting to note this. It's interesting to note that in the New Testament, there are a few examples of various lists being kept. One of them is in 1 Timothy 5, 9, where it says this, A widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man. And then down in verse 11, it says, But refuse to put younger widows on the list. And so the point is this, is that if lists were kept of widows in the church, it's not too far of a reach to imagine that they probably had other lists as well, and maybe a list of everyone who was part of the church, right? In addition, we know God keeps lists. He's organized. He's orderly. There's, in Revelation, we see this idea of the book of life with names written in it. Um, and so essentially, we see that membership is just a practical way as the leadership of a church, to, to be a good steward in organization, uh, in organization and orderliness of the church, keeping track of everyone. Third, biblical evidence for church membership is this, is that we see Paul writing to specific individual churches, right? He didn't just write to the universal church in general, but he wrote to a specific group of people with specific problems, Right? He says, hey, church in Ephesus, you have left your first love. The church in Galatia had problems with legalism. How did he know that? Because he knew those individuals. The church in Corinth had all sorts of problems going on. And yet his relationship with the Philippians was a lot different. Right? 
his beloved Philippians. So individually, he addressed each church, even calling them out by specific names at times. Boy, how would you like to be one of those sitting in a church, uh, maybe Yodia or Syntyche, and you've been in conflict with one another, right? Let's just say you're in conflict with your friend. You receive a letter to your church from the Apostle Paul, and the leader of your church begins reading the letter, and suddenly he says, uh, I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. And everyone knows you've been fighting, and now it's just been pronounced to the whole church. I would, I would just want to crawl out of my skin, right? But what's the point? Is that Paul knew individuals in these churches. This is not the only place he calls people out by name. He knew these churches. He knew which people were a part of the church, which people were not. He knew who were false teachers in the churches. He knew them down to the individual person. And lastly, a last biblical evidence, not a proof, but an evidence from Scripture for church membership is this, is that this idea of the unity of the body. Scripture gives the imagery of the church as a body functioning together to form a singular unit. Each member is a different part, but I want to ask this question, how is the unit of the body defined without some form of commitment? In other words, when do you actually become a part of that body? Turn, turn back to Romans again, and as you're turning there, I'll ask, at what point does a church begin to use a person's gifts and talents as part of the body? 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, Ephesians 4, all of these passages talk about the gifts of believers being for the benefit of the body, right? We see you are Christ's body and individual members of it. Ephesians 4.25 says we are members of one another. And in Romans 12, 4, Romans chapter 12, verse 4, Paul says, For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, or he, he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. And with all these ex as examples, I'm not trying to say that Paul is using the word member here to refer to church member. But I am demonstrating that there was a known group of people who functioned together as members of a local body of Christ. And the simple question again is this, who were the members of a given congregation to whom this applies? If you don't know which church you're at, then where can you actually use your gifts in? If there's no commitment to a body, we lose the ability of these passages uh, to apply in our churches to some degree. Further, just another observation, doctrinal unity is another huge point, I think, for church membership, is that if a church is going to ask someone to lead a Bible study, but they don't, there's no commitment to the doctrinal statement of that church, it's just a mess. You've got chaos going on. And so I believe church membership is uh, at the least healthy and at the most biblical. I think the reason we even push back to this is because of culturalism, right? We've been culturalized uh, by our, our culture's way of thinking, a lack of submission, a lack of obedience. In our culture, it's so easy to just say, hey, if I don't have to commit to something and I can get the benefit from it, why not? I'm, I'm one up now, right? Uh, avoiding accountability, avoiding submission, avoiding authority. These are vices that our culture is planting in our minds. That's the only reason that we even do this is because we're scared to submit uh, to someone or to something. So there's really no good reason not to commit to Christ's bride. Lastly, guys, the last one for tonight, a biblical view, another mark of a healthy church is this, a biblical view of church restoration. And this is where things really begin to delineate. And I got to admit, when I first heard that Grace Bible Church did church discipline or restoration, uh, I didn't know really how I felt about this, uh, how I felt about a church publicly pronouncing the habitual sin of some of its members. I think it scared me, right, because I knew that I sinned and I thought that this being announced to everyone was just barbaric. Uh, I thought of anyone's sin being announced seemed like hate speech or public defamation or something illegal. Uh, but, but then I began to read the Bible. And I, 
Go to Matthew chapter 18. Go to Matthew chapter 18 so we can read this together. This is a big topic, and I want us to see this from the words of Jesus himself. First book in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 18. Look at verse 15. Jesus says this, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. So here we see in these few verses the outline process of how the church is to deal with sin, right? And on this, I just want to point out a few observations. They're on your handout, but track with me here to help us accept, be able to understand this because, again, culture has influenced how we view Scripture. And number one, I want to consider the motive of church restoration. What is the motive of this process? Is it punitive? Is it to heap on guilt on a person? To make them feel even worse about their sin? No, that is not the intent of church restoration. Not at all. In fact, look at verse 12, the immediate preceding context. Verse 12, same chapter. Jesus says, what do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 which had not gone astray. Verse 14, so it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Okay? This short parable reminds us that God doesn't want any professing Christian to stray. Jesus explains this man having a hundred sheep, one strays, he'll leave the 99 to go get the one. That's about God. That's that's showing God's heart for, for believers to repent. Now, here's the key. This parable is the immediately preceding context for church discipline. The point being is that church discipline is the practical means by which God accomplishes his heart for an unrepentant believer. Whether a brother or sister strays, church restoration is the process of trying to bring them back, trying to help them see their sin and repent. Secondly, from uh, the Matthew 18, 15 to uh, 18, I want to point out this, is that church restoration is for professing believers. Okay? Did you notice in verses 15 to 18 how this process happens? Right? Go to one, go, go to them with one, then with two, and tell it to the church. Then if not, what happens? Well, then at that point, you are to treat them as a tax collector or a Gentile. In other words, you're to treat them as an unbeliever. That's essentially what he's saying there. And the assumption is is that before, you were treating them as a believer, right? In verse 12, uh, we saw that this, this person is called a sheep, and they were in the flock, right? In verse 15, we see And Jesus saying, if your brother sins, all of these are indicators that this is at the minimum a professing believer. Maybe not genuine, but at least professing. And we know this from elsewhere in Scripture. We would never expect obedience from an unbeliever. We just wouldn't. Unbelievers do unbeliever things. Believers are expected to follow God. And so church restoration is for professing believers. Thirdly is this, church restoration is necessary for the church's witness. And I want you to imagine for a moment a church that didn't care about sin. Okay? They don't care about sin. They don't deal with sin. In fact, you don't have to imagine it. Just go to most churches and they don't. They don't deal with sin, right? What is the outcome of a church like that? Let me ask this, what kind of witness to the outside world does a church like that portray? And I'll tell you the one word that comes to my mind, hypocrites, right? They profess to be different. They profess to know God, to have this special relationship with Jesus. And yet this guy's cheating on his wife. This guy's a habitual liar. And this guy uh, is, is stealing money from his work. How does that line up? It doesn't. And so for the sake of the purity of the church, for the sake of the witness of the church, the church is to deal with sin in this manner. And just to wrap this point up, though, if if you're starting to worry, (laughs) okay, don't worry. 
well, maybe you need to worry, but hopefully not. Uh, because this, this is not for someone who's just struggling with a sin. There's a difference between struggling with a sin and habitually, unrepentantly living in sin. In other words, church discipline is for those who, who habitually, unrepentantly do the same sin willfully by choice. Hopefully most of us would be willing to hear out a brother or sister if they came to us. And then if two came to us, I'd at least say, hopefully, and you would at least say, wow, I need to examine myself. I need to see if there's somewhere where I need to ask forgiveness or consider where I'm going wrong. And you may struggle with the same sin, but the fact is, is that you're struggling with it. And so is it a struggle or are you willfully? Church discipline is not for someone struggling with sin. It's for someone who, quote, will not listen to you, right? And here's the neat thing, guys. For those of you that go here, I know all of you don't go here, but if you do go here, anytime this church has done church discipline, it is with so much love. I mean, it's hard to communicate love in that kind of an announcement, but it is with utmost love and care and years and years go into these individuals of pleading with them and praying for them. Please turn from this. Please turn from your sin. Please just acknowledge your sin even. I know that, that I personally want to be in a church that loves me enough to do that if I were to ever stray, if I were to ever be so blind that I wasn't even willing to turn from my own sin when, the, when two or three elders came to me, I would want them to do that. And so this is all we have time for tonight, guys. Um, I want to pray and just, uh, I guess I want to leave you with this. If you're struggling with some of these points, there were some hard things said tonight, right? We looked at membership, we looked at discipline, we looked at the role of women in the church. Uh, please stick around, talk to one of us. Don't leave just mad and I'm never coming back here. I want to sort through these biblically with you. I would love to discuss these in a biblical manner. Um, I think to some degree we've been influenced by our culture. Like I said, it, it's hard for us to accept some of these because of the culture we live in, but I just want to get it right. I want to teach what God's Word says, and I want to be part of a church that's doing that as well. So let's pray, and the band can come on up. Father, thank you for being so clear on how we are to do church, Lord. Lord, you have given us direction for what the church is to preach and how it is to be preached. You've given us direction for what leadership is to look like by way of elder and deacon, uh, qualifications and their roles. Lord, you've given us uh, the command to not forsake assembling together, but to be committed to a body, Lord, the body of Christ. And Lord, uh, we saw the process of church discipline. God, would these things sink into our hearts, that we would know your word, and that, Lord, you would give us a grid to evaluate uh, the many, many churches that we are being bombarded with, God. I pray that all of these individuals would desire to be in a biblical church, a church that is healthy, a church that is thriving, and where truly Christ is the head. God, that's where we want to be. We want to be somewhere where Christ is. And so, Lord, give us uh, that kind of wisdom and discernment. Lord, we pray for our own spiritual growth as well. In Jesus' name, amen.